0: Luke writes um, in chapter 6 beginning in verse 39, he also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not fall into a pit? Both fall into a pit. A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Let's pray together. Father, I love you and I adore you, God. I thank you so much for the opportunity, Father, to... um, to come together, to study, Father. I pray, God, that what i prepared now is is right and ready. God, it's going to grow us. It's going to help our hearts, help us live our lives, Father God, in a way that's bold and, and dramatic for You, Father God. We, we need that, God. I don't want to stumble through life anymore, Father God. I don't want to feel conflicted anymore, God. I know you placed me in the world specifically, God, and I want to be able to go there, God, with a clear conscience, ready, God, to, to strive, Father God for you to, to take every opportunity, Father, to, to bring honor and glory to you, Father God, and to live that kind of life, Lord, that just leaves no doubt. If there's anything we can do, Father God, I pray, Lord, that we're small in number, but that we're powerful in our authenticity, Father God, that, we look, that you look at us and that people would look at us, God, and they would say, those are people, God, for whom the thumbprints of Christ are literally on their lives. I want that so badly, Father God. So show us how to find that God in in a way in which we, uh, through the Scriptures, in which we we redefine the church, Father God, as as, as a true family. In which we look out for each other and we pour into each other, Father God. And we know, God, that, that when we do that, that you're going to really bless us, Father God. Those of us who are scattered, who are abroad, Father. Those of our our family, God, who aren't able to be here, God, for whatever reason. Many of which, God, are away in work. I pray, Father God, that, that and I'm thankful, God, that they can hear the sound of our voices, God, in, in teaching and in preaching. And that they can be comforted, Father God. So I pray, God, that, that not only do I preach and teach for those who are here right now, God, but that I'm always conscious of the fact that someone else is listening. Lord, we love You. In the name of Christ, I pray, Lord. Amen. So, let's look real, real quickly at um, kind of the scenario that our, our Lord has given us here. And that is that it's in the midst of that teaching in Luke's Gospel there, following the Beatitudes, when we get that, uh, that injunction against uh, against being judgmental, alright? And we know that's the, of all the things that we talk about, it's the hardest thing to define because typically what we want to do is, um, not necessarily us, but a lot of people um, um, within the body of believers and also um, kind of loosely connected to it in many ways, they want to define this in such a way that um, that being judgmental means we don't, you, you can't have uh, an opinion on my life. That Jan, you can't, you can't, um, you can't have an opinion about whether what I do is right or wrong. Well, now let's talk about that for just a second. Here's the reality. The reality is this: is that it probably is intrusive for me to be a busybody. And stick my nose in Brianna's business. But God didn't trust me with morality. God predecided those things. Now, issues of wisdom, certainly. There are going to be issues in which right and wrong isn't clearly cut. But God decided adultery is wrong. God decided Stealing is wrong. God decided lying is wrong. God decided murder is wrong. My saying that murder is wrong is not being judgmental. If you happen to be a murderer. Because I didn't decide that. He didn't trust me with that. God didn't say, didn't leave it up to me whether or not um, adultery or fornication or these things would be wrong. Because God decreed those from on high into humanity. I I don't get to fix that. I don't get to set the mark for that because God did ahead of time. I'm not doing that to try to be hurtful to anyone or call special attention to anyone. That's not the point with this. But the point is that we do need to define what it means to be judgmental. Before we go on, because we talk about brotherhood in this. It means there are going to be times in which you may do it for me or I may do it for you. Where I have to say, no brother, sister, you're wrong. There are going to be times like that when I'm going to have to do that. Or you're going to have to do that. This doesn't work if we don't have the liberty and the freedom and also the relational currency to be able to go to each other and say, you're messing up. In a familial way, that works. The problem is, as we talked about before, and I remember having this discussion, we talked about church disciplines. specifically, Specifically, and it was with our men, and it was years and years ago probably six, seven years ago. And it was in their Sunday school class, having that discussion. And one of the men wisely said, I can't imagine doing this, I'll never get that. And what I said was, It's because we don't have the relationship. Because even though we can go to church with people for 20 or 30 or 40 years, we can, we manage to remain acquaintances. We know them, we know all sorts of things about them, but we aren't really close in that way. We're still chasing kind of that same elusive dream. Even though our church is much smaller than this, how can we really be close enough that I can be intimately involved in Lucas's life and he can be intimately involved in my life so that we can truly be brothers and watch out for each other? So that even a younger brother can go to an older to an elder, so to speak, and say, Brother, this is this is wrong. And do it in a loving fashion, in a way that isn't that isn't an accusation. But now that that all that hinges on one primary thing besides relationship, which we got to have. The other thing hinges on the fact that we have to agree on what morality is. We have to agree. On God's. Universal Christian morality. We have to agree. On those things. We have to agree. That lying is wrong. We have to agree. That stealing. Is wrong. We have to agree. That murder is wrong. We have to agree. That adultery is wrong. We have to agree. That fornication is wrong. We have to agree. These things are wrong. If we don't agree. These things are wrong. Then we got problems. We are operating. By separate standards. We need the same standard. So that is one of those things. We have been talking about. and We are going to talk about. As we go through this section of this Bible study, is that we're going to spend a whole lot of time, we need to spend a whole lot of time studying and studying together and embracing what God says. Because if we don't, then we start to get very slippery with those things. Now, I know what we're thinking. I think this too all the time. My settings are usually, um, are usually indulgent or harsh. Do you know what I mean by that? I mean either I'm, when I say it, I'm, it comes out so harsh that it breaks hearts needlessly, Kimberly. Or it's indulgent and I'm willing to change the rules for people I love. But God's path forward is between those two. What makes being judgmental biblically wrong in terms of being judgmental is when it's harshly judging. Judging with harshness. Seeing myself as perfect and other people as deeply flawed. Now, I bet there are lots of people in this room who have had this conversation, haven't we? And we've gone to someone and said, look, I've made that mistake before. I know where the path leads. I was that wrong before. Listen to me. Don't go that way because it's going to lead to destruction. Is that a different conversation? I'm acknowledging my own sinfulness. You're acknowledging your own sinfulness by nature. Now, I think probably what we've seen is, is kind of a responsibility for each other within church that looks more like looking down your nose at someone. Have you ever seen that one? I have. I have. That's that's being harshly judgmental. It's not truth spoken with love. It's truth spoken to injure. It doesn't change the truth doesn't change the truth at all. But there's a way to do it in which it is a ministry into the life of a a believer. Or a ministry into the life of an unbeliever. And there's a way to do it that just simply drives wedges. So we we want to seek that path forward that is truth and love. In which we can be bold. Katie, we can be as bold as we can be. But people, people may not agree with what we say. But they never doubt the love. They never doubt that. I do not believe that there's a path forward that does not include both. Because I think this is exactly what our Lord was. He was both bold about what was true and absolutely loving when He spoke it. So, <clears throat> let's look. This is kind of where I'm, I'm going to catch on to this. The church's legitimate prophet for heaven is in the heaping of praise and of glory on Christ. And we do that... By discipling and equipping souls for kingdom purposes. So the way that we show the most glory to God is by discipling and equipping people. It's not in in sheer numbers. It's not in in some kind of greatness of possessions. The way that we do this is when when we're able to truly disciple and truly equip people. Preparing people to go forth in this world and do amazing things. That's what we're here for. Brother Mike, we've come together. God brought you from a really long way away to this very place so together we can we can unite our lives and equip people to go forth and do these things for our Lord. Now, some of us are going to be people in this room right now who are of age. We'll send girls out into the mission field. Some of us will take whole groups out in the mission field. You will make a mission field out of your work or your school. That's where that equipping... And that discipling starts to pay off in glory for the kingdom. But a lot of it is going to go all the way down to babies. For we set our ch- uh, this, the, the course of this church, uh, Brother Joe, toward the next generation and the next generation. For we make investments not just of, of, of revenue, but we make investments of time and of will. We want to raise a certain kind of child here. We want the babies that grow up at First Baptist Church to stand out in the crowd. We want to teach them things that we know they're not going to get at a, at a secular public school. We want to fill the breach. We want to do those things. So that's part, that's a huge portion of what we're doing. This is done by accentuating, no, how we do it. By accentuating God and diminishing the world. If there's anything, I could put it in a slogan, it's that. We want to make God bigger and bigger and bigger in all of our lives, in our sermons, in our Bible studies, in our worship, in our church life total, in the lives, in the way in which we disciple. It's always, this is how great God is, and diminish the world. Shrink the world down. And I've I've said this for a long time, and I don't mean to to harp on my own words. That's certainly not my goal here. But we've all got to admit that as the church is constituted right now, this church, not just the church whole, but I mean this church, the world can have an undue influence on us, can it? We're very plugged into it. I think we're more worldly because it's just easier. All right? I mean, when I was a kid, when a lot of us in this room were a kid and you had... I remember distinctly having one phone and one TV. And there are lots of people in this room who remember no TVs and maybe not even a phone all the time or a phone in which you shared with others. No air air conditioner. Yes, I totally remember that. Yes, ma'am, I do. And I don't remember being hot. Let the air go out nowadays and we'll die. I don't remember being hot back then. But we're hot now. As I made a joke out of before, but it's still kind of true. When we only had the one phone and it was a party line, the only entertainment was to pick up and listen in, right? <laughs> and you'd do it. You would never get a whipping like you got from listening on the party line. You would get the tar beat out of you then now. Because you were being exactly what people think you were being. You were being messy. Whatever you heard, you wouldn't tell. And it was never anything salacious. Somebody had a bunion or something like that. And that was as bad as it got. But you sure enough would listen. But that was it. There wasn't much. So the world, we were so cut off from the world. When you went home, it didn't seem to get in the way it does now. Nowadays we go home and everybody's individual, aren't they? Got their own electronic device. Everybody's watching what they want to watch. And it's very, I, I know, I enjoy it. I mean, first thing, I enjoy it. I'm not, I'm not hating on it in that way. But at the same time, I realize that it has an undue influence on us girls. That it didn't have just a few generations ago. A couple of generations. It just didn't have that. We had one television. And three channels. And they didn't always come in. So we spent a lot of time not watching TV, for instance, because there just wasn't anything to watch. And it didn't come on, and it went off pretty early at night, and it didn't come on till later in the morning. So there was a lot, it was a lot different world. Nowadays it's so intrusive, it's in with us all the time. And so the point I'm making is, is that because it's gotten so big, we've got to intentionally spend time diminishing it. We've got to intentionally spend time driving those wedges between our people and the world. Driving those wedges between the youth group and the world. Challenging them. Challenging each other. And I, maybe I'm not the, right one to say this but I'm the pastor I guess I'm the only one to say this it's real easy in the morning to get up and watch TV and not do devotion it's real easy it takes no effort to watch television it takes a lot of effort to get up and open the scriptures and read enough passages to do you good to not shortchange that and give something else more than it deserves more than it's due and so what we have to do in this situation is we have to challenge each other. Let me show you just a few more things and then we'll, we'll be finished. The focus of the process of discipleship is on Jesus and not on the nature or character of people. In the end, we have to recalibrate our discipleship um, back, uh, Jane, to just being about Christ. It's so easy when we start to do discipleship to start talking about women's issues or men's issues. Do you know what I mean by that? Think about how many, I can't tell you how many men's um, Bible studies I've done in my life or how many women's Bible studies I've sampled in my life that seem to be all about being a woman or all about being a man and never really about being godly. Now, mind you, they were incredibly popular and there are lots of really popular people who write them and they're popular because they're dealing with exactly what people want but not necessarily what they need. Now, I I will say this. Um, I've, I've counseled a lot of people in my life and I'm friends with a lot of people that struggle and I can say this, of the strugglers in this world, at some point everybody just decides they're just going to not struggle anymore. Now I'm not telling you to put some dirt on it. Like we'd say in football. You know, just put a little dirt on it and be okay. But what I'm saying is this, at some point when people start to really overcome things, they start to decide, that you know what, Jesus is more important and bigger than my problems. And I'm gonna focus on him no matter what my problems are. My health's a problem, I'm gonna focus on Christ more than my health. My marriage is a problem, we'll focus on Christ more than my marriage. My finances are a problem, we'll focus on Christ more than my finances. We can chase our tails all day long trying to fix the character defects that are in this room. Fix the personality problems or the shortcomings that are in this room, that in the end they they will probably linger but they do not have to be an impediment. We'll focus on the nature of Christ and on the nature of people. Making much of the Savior and increasing the personal um, knowledge of biblical truth so that believers can accurately and powerfully share their faith in Christ is the goal of biblical evangelism? Our goal of evangelism is not, uh, Mister Lors, to go out and share the not just to go out and share the gospel with everybody we see. Our goal of evangelism is to come into this room and prepare everybody to go forth and share the gospel with everybody they see. So, so that, so that Kimberly and and Aubrey and Roger are ready. It's not that they just that they know they've got to do it or they're supposed to do it. That's a hard thing to do in, in, the, in the church, isn't it? When you know you're supposed to do something but you're not sure how to do it. Anybody ever been like that? I've been like that. I'm a pastor. I've been like that a whole lot. I know I've got to do this. I've got no clue how to even start. Incompetence will paralyze you. Won't, or, or perceived incompetence will paralyze you, won't, won't want it. And what will competence do? to It just empowers you. When that bell gets rung, you just realize, I know exactly how to go forth and do this. I know exactly how to start that conversation. You run to it, don't you? Because you know what to say. One of the things that we've got to do is, is in, our, in our evangelism, we've got to prepare people to go out and do this. We've got to get people ready so that, Diane, they're confident. They're not reaching for the words. It's not robotic. It's still personal and relational and just the way it needs to be. It's sweet and it's tender and it's a function of our hearts and our conviction for Christ and our love for people. But that we prepared you to go out and do it. We've got to do that. I've got to do that. We've got to do this together. And that's when we get to the verse I want to focus on. Luke 6.40, our Lord teaches the disciples not above His teacher. But everyone when He's fully trained will be like His teacher. I'm one of them. Some of you are share this burden with me in this room. You're teachers. I don't mean in the public school system. I mean here within the body of believers. And when we start to put our, our imprint, our, our stamp, our mark on people, when they're fully trained, they're going to look like us. Now, I'll say where I've seen it, um, Brian and Kyle are very individual. You know, they're, they're they're extremely individualistic, I guess is the right way to say it. Um, you know, the... the when the sermons wind up on Spotify or, or wherever we, we put them, and you hear them, you know when you're listening to Brian. You know when you're listening to Kyle. You know when you're listening to me, right? You've heard us all enough times for long periods of time, right? I get it, okay? That you know who you're, you're listening to, right? But over time, we've started to say very similar things, haven't we? Very similar things. I, I all the time, remember when they first... Came here and I first got to really hear them preach all the time. I started to realize that I remembered us talking about some of the things they were talking about. They were preaching about some things that I knew we'd set around and we'd hash these things out. That I, as, as just the older guy, and they kind of gravitated to me and were brought into my life wonderfully by the will of our Father, I got to, to influence them. I get to influence them. Now, mind you, they've surpassed me in every way. And that's what a teacher wants. I want to be surpassed. I want my my children in the faith to be stronger than I am. I absolutely want that more than anything else. However, I know that they're going to bear some of the marks and the images of, of me. And I'm glad for that. That's part of what we're trying to do here. And what I should be doing on you. I should be doing on you. I should be rubbing off on you, and Brian and Kyle should be rubbing off on you. To be fully trained, therefore, like the teacher, is our emphasis in carefully and systematically training believers in the scriptures from the earliest days. Carefully and systematically. So much is made in this world of really stirring sermons. I don't do it very often, but even, even I have my days every once in a while. For just some reason, I've just, got just the right mindset and God has really touched my heart about something. And I can come in and I can really preach with passion. And every once in a while, my passion just radiates out to people. And it's shared. Do you know what I mean? Everybody gets passionate about what I'm talking about that Sunday. It's not every Sunday. But what I'm here to say is this. Is that as cool as that is, and I think it's great that that happens. I think it's great that God moves us through the Holy Spirit together as a body. The reality is is that's not the only reason we meet and we preach. Sometimes it's going to be like this and it's not really stirring. Sometimes we might even say it's boring. But now, Jan, you taught a long time. I started thinking the other day, my first year was 1991. Now all those weren't filled with teaching years, but that's been a long time around other folks' youngins. And you know what? Sometimes when I think it's the most boring, it's exactly what they need to do, right? Sometimes the things that are the most fun aren't the things that they really need right then. Careful and Systematic. We're learning to be who we're supposed to be in Christ every day and in every Bible study and every time we meet for prayer and in every Sunday school class and every little stolen moment in which you and a teacher, you and an elder, you and someone can sit around and talk and pray together. All of that comes together carefully and systematically to produce people after the heart of God. You are not a culmination of just my sermons. You're not a culmination of just Brian's or just Kyle's. But everything together, led by God, led by God, but it all works together to make us better for Christ. The stirring times, and some of those times that seem kind of kind of kinda flat, God still uses. Now I think one of the problems we have in the modern church is that far, far too many people are really want the stirring stuff. And they just don't have the patience for the times in which they've got to use their head and not just their heart. Because I'm going to tell you, every church needs some of this. Every church needs this. Every church needs the passion. Passion to, to raise holy hands to God. Every church needs that. But that doesn't just make a God-centered church. It's part of the equation. It's a tiny sliver of everything God's trying to do. Now, I guess the best way I could explain it is this is courage to me. And y'all, please don't be angry with me if I use it. If it touches a button that maybe doesn't need to be touched at this time. But if you've lost uh, a mom or a dad or a precious grandmother or grandfather, um, do you remember that time when you were called upon to maybe go through their things? I bet you found scraps of paper in there. And they were just scraps of paper. They weren't worth anything. But to you at that moment, what were they worth? Everything. They'd held it. That's their handwriting. And it could have been a grocery list. But you didn't care, did you? You didn't care because it was precious. Because it had come in contact with that loved one. See, we're going to face... And and really, this is greater even than that comparison. Not being disrespectful to anyone's mother or father grandmother grandfather. But this is the same way. Now, one of these days we're going to look back. We're going to be 80, 90, 100 years old. And we're going to look back over our lives in Christ and realize that there are all these little scraps that were precious. Not just these great pounding sermons, but tiny little moments. A time when somebody prayed with you or, or wrote you a, a, a note of encouragement or said something or called or nowadays texted. And it's going to be just as important for your a building in Christ as that passionate sermon was. It doesn't mean we can do without the, the sermon. It means... That God's using both of them to build us up systematically, carefully. Carefully. Part of this is in cementing within our individual understanding of theology the holiness of God. We can never stop talking about that. Why do we worship God? Because He is deserving of worship, He's worthy of it, because He is infinitely holy. I think one of the problems we have is that as people, when we start to think about, ponder God, we tend to, to humanize God, to personify God. He is a person, but he cannot bear uh, his image cannot bear human personification because he is not one of us. He is not human in that way. He is perfect beyond our rational comprehension. In fact, it's going to take the unburdening of our spirit from this wicked flesh for us to see Him face to face and not be consumed by the image. One of these days, you're going to be in heaven staring at His image, able to take it in in infinite fashion in a way that Moses could not, right? Moses could only see His back and you will see the face of Christ. You will see Christ face to face. The glory of God. His holiness, his wonder, his power. We've got to focus on that every every time we talk about this idea of of the theology of the holiness of God. And the cursed bankruptcy of the earth. Along with that, the depravity of man. The idea is this, Brendy, is that, that we make God bigger and bigger and bigger. And we make us smaller and smaller and more and more wicked. God is never so glorious as he is when I think about my own wickedness. Part of the problem with, 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 with minimizing God and minimizing the image of God is that I think most of us do that for our own comfort. If Virginia, if God doesn't seem quite so large, then I can be a little more comfortable with my sin. I tell you what, everybody does that. We well, you know everybody makes mistakes. Is absolutely true. But it's no consolation when I think about the cross of Christ or the glory of God. I don't feel better when everybody makes mistakes, when I think about a blood-stained cross or an occupied throne. It makes me feel worse. I start to aspire to something better when I realize how great and how glorious God is. It's not enough for me to be like everybody else. He saved me. He bled for me. He died for me. He has loved me enough to bear my sins, atone for my crimes, and assuage the very anger of God on my behalf. I'm now called to live a radically different life. When I look at my own depravity, I don't just embrace the theology of my depravity. I just embrace the theology of my failings. You shouldn't embrace the theology of your failings. Which well, says, God, how can I be this way when you are so glorious and the glorious one died for the depraved one? How can I be like that? Charles Spurgeon explained, he said, nothing teaches us about the preciousness of the Creator as much as we learn the emptiness of everything else. You know, what's the, I think the greatest antidote to the world being in our lives and in our homes and in our electronic devices and and all those places it seems to have gotten those anchors in, I think the greatest antidote is when we start to see it all as bankrupt in comparison to the living God. When we start to see God is so precious and so wonderful that it's not worth trading a moment of our time for anything the world has to offer. When that happens... When that happens, how much more do we want of Him and how much less do we want of the world? See, the problem with us more often than not is there's competition going on. Is The world looks good. It looks enticing and appealing. We embrace it. We accept it. We think it's okay. We make excuses for it. And He says, but wait a second, look. Just, just, just consider how much God is worth and how this is worth nothing. Just consider it for a second. From the power, this powerful foundation, we can then pursue the matters of Christ fully and with gusto. Look, our Lord and Savior instructs and inspires when He says in John 8:31 31-32, So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in Him, If you abide in My Word, you are truly My disciples. And you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So he gives us a... And this is where we'll close. I'm about out of time. Um, This is where he gives us that kind of uh, push in the right direction theologically. Abide in my word then you're truly disciples. Abide in the word of God and you'll truly be disciples and the outpoint of that is you will know the truth you'll know it and it will set you free set free by the truth of god through the word of god because we're abiding in him not in the world not halfway in or halfway out not wavering or deciding but Mike committed that we're going to live in Christ and in Christ alone is the key to real freedom, real brotherhood, and a different church.